I want to use as my text this evening the words found there in the middle of verse 5. I fell upon my knees. That really is the message tonight I have for you. It's a message that came to my own heart. On his knees. Could I ask you now in the fear of God, have you been on your knees today? Have you sought the Lord's face today? Have you emulated this great servant of God that was greatly used? He fell upon his knees. The final two chapters of the book of Ezra are occupied with the conditions that prevailed in Jerusalem at the time when Ezra and the people arrived from Babylon. The chapters identify the problems that confronted them and show how Ezra reacted to it and how a solution was found. Now, Ezra had not been long in Jerusalem. Some believe that he was just there a few days. Others think he had been there maybe a week or two. I read one commentator who said he had been there four months. I just don't know. But it seems that he was there just a short time. When some of the leaders of the people informed him of a threat to the post-exilic Jewish community, I don't mean to insult your intelligence, post-exilic simply means after the exile. And uh, they brought this report of intermarriages between the Jews and the pagans, or the Gentiles, if you like. Intermarriage with local Canaanite groups were forbidden by the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 20 deals with this kind of thing. The extent of the problem is shown in that all three major groups of the community were involved. The people, and then the priests, and then the Levites. Verse 2 make that uh, clear. The situation was made worse because the leaders and the officials had taken the lead in this compromise. It's just like saying that the minister and the elders of the church here were involved in some kind of a compromise. That's the serious, how serious it was. Now, the issue was not racial, it was religious. And God had chosen Israel to be his own chosen possession, a holy nation, uh, a kingdom of priests, according to what we read in the book of Exodus chapter 19. And his plan to bring blessing to all peoples of the earth meant that his chosen people should maintain their identity. That was very, very important. And I think there's a lesson for us all we can apply it to the church. If we want to be a blessing to the nations of the world, if you like, we need to maintain our identity as the people of God. So we can glean lessons from the past. And these lessons are right up to date. From them would come God's servant, the one uh, who would be a light to the Gentiles, who would provide salvation for men and women, Jew and Gentile. In a word, there were sin in the camp in the land of Israel. Sin in the camp. Sin in the camp is a very serious matter, very serious issue. And we need at all costs to safeguard ourselves against that. It was a very sad 
state of affairs at that particular time because God's people were hopelessly involved in the world. That's really what was happening at that particular time. The situation was critical. Ezra was heartbroken. How do I know that? Well, he rent his garments. In Bible times, when prophets rent their garments, they were filled with sorrow. They were heartbroken. He rent his garments. He plucked the hair of his face. And he sat down, astonished, in verse 3. In this frame of mind, he gave himself to prayer, verse 5. Now, if you were to go home tonight and someone in the home, or maybe tomorrow, someone meets with you, and they may put to you, I wasn't at the meeting last night. What was he on last night? Well, you could say he was on chapter 9 of the book of Ezra. The next question, what was it all about? What did they say about it? Maybe that's a question you find difficult to answer after hearing a message preached on a Tuesday night. I'm not going to pass any criticism, just throwing the thought out there. It happens to us, doesn't it? Well, there's, there's three things that sum up this chapter. Three simple things. So if you take nothing else away, if you meet someone tomorrow, you can say three things about Ezra chapter 9. There's the problem facing Ezra verses 1 and 2. We've mentioned this. Intermarriage. Okay. The second thing is the posture adopted by Ezra, verses 3 and 4. He sat down a stone Okay, we've dealt with two things. And then the final thing is the prayer offered by Ezra. That occupies verse 5 through 15. So there are three things that we know about this ninth chapter of the book of Ezra. And at the heart of it all, he's on his knees. God's servant is on his knees. Upon his knees. Before the throne of heavenly grace. He teaches, or his prayer teaches us, how to shape our prayers and underlines the importance of of, uh, individual prayer in our lives and the corporate life of the church. So listen to me, be patient with me, and pray for me. There are three simple things I want to draw to your attention tonight. First of all, there's the time of his prayer. Well, what time was it when he began to pray. I don't know how long he'd been sitting there. I don't know long how long he was sitting there astonished. I can't say for sure. But I do know when he began to pray. The verse 5 tells us, also in verse 4, it was at the time of the evening sacrifice, and the evening sacrifice was a burnt offering, and the burnt offering was all for God. It speaks to us of Christ. For the sacrifice he made was offered to God the Father on behalf of his people. It was all burnt. It was all for God. That's Christ. Keep that in mind as we develop the message. And it was offered about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Go back to Exodus chapter 12 verse 6. And the offering was to be in the evening time. And then you come to the New Testament. James and John or Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. It was the ninth hour. It was three o'clock in the afternoon at the time of the burnt offering, at the time of the sacrifice, just at the time this man, Ezra, began to pray. So the sacrifice was made. And then from Acts chapter 3, it was also the time for prayer and the time for confession because these two men went up to pray. 
family. This is important. It was as the sweet fragrance of the sacrifice reached Ezra's nostrils that he was moved to pour out his soul unto God in prayer. That's a sweet thought because it points us to Calvary. It brings the death of Christ before us. And the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, culminated, it was brought to a climax. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Led out at nine, the darkness descended at 12 noon. And then at three o'clock, his last words, he's gone. The sacrifice is complete. It is finished. We have a foreview of this. In Ezra chapter 9, and the point is this, through the sacrifice of God's Son, three o'clock that afternoon is the only basis by which we draw near to God. And as we come to this time of prayer tonight, as we engage in prayer, remember this, that as we bow here for prayer, as we get on our knees before God, we are drawing nigh to God the Father through the sacrifice of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't deserve any answers in our own merit, but it comes to us through the work of Jesus Christ. God's eye is upon us tonight as we get on our knees. God's ear is open unto us as we get before him. And he's ready and willing to bestow blessing upon us and to us through the work of Christ our Savior. That's our only ground of hope tonight. The blood of Christ gives us confidence to approach God. This similar kind of thing is brought to attention in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9. Samuel took a sucking lamb, offered it for a burnt offering, and cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. The Philistines were coming. They're about to attack. The people uh, say, Samuel, pray for us. Oh, that's a good thing. Good sign when people ask you to pray for them. And so we see Samuel taking the sucking lamb. Prime of life. Points again to Christ. Prime of life. He's bringing the lamb. He's approaching God through the merits of Christ. And he's saying to the heavenly father, look upon the lamb that is slain and be gracious to us through the merit of what this lamb represents. So we come tonight, like Samuel, we're pleading the merits of the lamb before the throne of heavenly grace. He's saying on the ground of this sacrifice and what it means. He cried to the Lord, and the Lord answered for Jesus' sake. Typically, he was approaching God through the merits of Christ. And that's what we do tonight in this season of prayers. We get on our knees before God, drawing nigh through Christ. Same thing as brought to attention 1 Kings 18, 36, in the story of uh, Elijah. And uh, Elijah came, it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice. Elijah said, who's he speaking to? Speaking to God the Father in heaven through the sacrifice. Hear me, O Lord, hear me. Then something wonderful happened. Then the fire fell. 
what am I saying to you? There was a response from heaven when they approached God through the sacrifice that points to Christ. There will always be a response from heaven when we pray in the Savior's name, coming, pleading the merits of his atoning sacrifice. This is it. This is how we get things from God. This is how we'll get a minister from God. This is how we'll see your family, my family, gathered into the kingdom. That wayward son, that wayward daughter, that rebellious father or mother. It's only through Christ. We're on praying ground tonight. He's on his knees. And in our hearts, we're on our knees, I trust. Ezra said, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. He's one of the uh, many in the Bible who prayed on his knees. Uh, I suppose you know quite a number of them. Solomon prayed on his knees, First uh, Kings 8, verse 54. The psalmist called us to bow down before God. Daniel was on his knees in chapter 6 and verse 10 of his book. Stephen, he prayed, chapter 7, as he was about to enter the presence of God. Literally. Now, we're going to enter into his presence tonight uh, spiritually. Oh, may we approach the throne upon bended knees tonight. Peter prayed, Acts chapter 9, 40. Uh, Paul prayed on his knees. And of course, the master, the Lord Jesus Christ, got on his knees in Luke chapter 22. Here's an example to follow. The greatest example of all, Jesus prayed on his knees. The Bible, let me make sure I get it right, the Bible has enough prayer not on the knees to show us that it isn't required, okay? But it also has enough prayer on the knees to show that it is good. All right, everybody clear with what I've said there? I hope I haven't confused you. So he's on his knees. Okay, what, a, what an image we have here. He's on his knees before God. And then he spread out his hands. It says, I spread out my hands unto the Lord. This was the common posture of prayer in Old Testament times. Uh, today, uh, we close our eyes and we bow our heads and sometimes we fold our hands, whatever. Well, that's the way we do it, some of us. But the Old Testament tradition was to spread the hands out toward heaven in a gesture of surrender. I surrender all. That's the, the attitude of openness. Or the hand is out to receive. The open hand is out to receive what God is, go, is going to give an answer to prayer. You take the little child coming to mommy or daddy. There's sweets in the house. And uh, the child knows that uh, at a certain time of the day or Every so often there's two, three sweets or whatever, bar of chug or whatever. And I've seen it so many times. The child comes, little hand is out there. Mama, Papa. So way my little grandson would come, Papa. Hand is out. It's encouraged to put out his hand. And there there's something placed from the loving, caring parent or grandparents there ready reception it was uh, old John Trump said with the palms open toward heaven and the having craving way as beggars 
This was the Jewish manner of praying, and it was very becoming. That's a man wrote that many hundreds of years ago. So Ezra fell on his knees and he spread his hands out to God as an indication of, this, of his dependence upon God. But there's a wee picture I want to see before moving on. You see him there in verse 4, he sat down. He's the priest. And he sat down there until the evening sacrifice. He's going to pray, but he sat down. He's the priest. And I thought about it today. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, when he went to teach the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, he sat down. And Luke chapter 4 went into the synagogue and uh, Nazareth, yes. He sat down to teach. But when he went to heaven, after he ascended to heaven, he sat down. What did he sit down to do? As our great high priest to intercede on our behalf. And so we have a, a faint picture of the priest sitting down. Soon he will begin to intercede on behalf of God's people. Soon he'll begin to pray. Do we not see a vivid, yeah, I, for me it is, picture of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He sat down in heaven, having finished the work of atonement, there to intercede on our behalf. And that's why we'll get through to God tonight, because he's praying for us. I've had a few good prayer meetings of late since the beginning of the year. The reason for that is simple. Because of our great high priest, he's taken pity upon us, showing to us mercy and tender compassion. He knows our needs. And tonight can be no exception. Please remember to enter in tonight. Engage the throne of heavenly grace. And lay hold upon God. We're on our knees tonight. We've got to move on. The type of a prayer. Now, what kind of a prayer was it? Was it praise? No. Was it petition? No. He doesn't really ask for anything in this prayer, as far as I can make out. It's mainly a prayer of confession. You can't pray for forgiveness if there's no repentance. And the people, their sins are brought to attention and they need to repent of their sins. You can't have forgiveness unless there is repentance. Listen. Listen. God is speaking. God is saying, no, you can't have forgiveness if there's no repentance. He doesn't ask for forgiveness in this prayer. He doesn't pray for pardon in this prayer. He brings the need for repentance and leaves the issues at the end of the prayer in the hands of God. You just do whatever's fit in thy sight. And I bow before it. The first thing that he identifies with his people, you will notice in verses 6 and 7 how quickly he moves from I in the singular Look at what he says and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. And then he begins to go to the plural, personal uh, pronoun plural, our. He confessed our iniquities are increased over our heads and our trespass has gone up unto the heavens. The sins of the nation, according to the picture we have here, 
It's like a flood which had spread across the whole land with devastating chaos. Verses 6 and 7. They could no longer be ignored. That is the sins of the people. Since the days of our fathers, he says, we have been in great trespass and because of our sins, we have been subject to the sword. What does that mean? The Babylonian captivity was the sword sent by God because of sin. The Assyrian captivity for the northern kingdom was God's judgment upon sin. It was the sword of God. And when God's people get away from God, then he sends the sword in order to draw his people to repentance. Oh, we have been subject to the sword. Their sins were persistent, according to verse 7, since the days of our fathers. Now, I'm not sure how far he goes back. If he goes away back to the days of, of Abraham or the days of Moses, I don't know how far he goes back. But he's praying for the forgiveness of sins. And the people have been in rebellion against God from the times of their fathers. And they were repeating the sins of their fathers. That's the thing. He knew the history of his people only too well. Sin was widespread. All classes of people had sinned. The priests, the Levites, the people, the kings. They, they all had sinned. It was widespread. All classes had sinned. The king and the throne down to the men and women on the street. The priests in the temple were guilty. And it was a disgrace for these men who were set aside for the service of God. They were defying God according to verses 10 and 11. They had willfully uh, disregarded and forsaken the commandments of God. 10 and 11 makes that abundantly clear. Sin is a rebellion against God. And according to verses 14 and 15, it deserved punishment. The nation was in danger of uh, a repeat of God's wrath. Remember what the psalmist said? When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Psalm 32, verse 3, nothing takes away the joy out of life. An unconfessed sin. It makes a man or woman miserable. Sin in the conscience. You can't sleep at night. You can't work during the course of the day. It's there. Well, Lord, let me go. It takes away my joy. It puts the, 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 the bucket of, of cold water upon my enthusiasm for God. The Prussian king Frederick the Great was once uh, touring a Berlin prison. Prisoners all fell on their knees when they saw the king coming to proclaim their innocence. You can see the picture, except for one man who remained very silent. He drew the attention of the king to himself and Frederick called to him, why are you here? Armed robbery, your majesty, was the reply. Are you guilty, asked the king. Yes, indeed, your majesty. I deserve my punishment. Frederick then summoned the jailer and ordered him release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have, uh, I, I will not have him kept in this prison, for he will corrupt all the fine innocent people who occupy it. Nobody wanted to confess or sin to acknowledge it, but one man, and because he confessed to his crime, the king who had the authority said, "Okay." Right, you can go. 
Other people remained in bondage because they weren't frank enough and honest enough to confess their sin. Ezra was preaching a message to the people. He wasn't holding anything back. He had the authority of heaven behind him. He was there, a humble man. He wasn't proud or arrogant in any way. He wasn't going beyond himself. He identifies with the sins of the people. Remember what they said? He begins, I, he's identifying with them, our sins. He's not saying this sinful bunch here. No, he's saying, I'm part of the problem. As is this preacher. We're all part of the problem. And we need to have this sin dealt with. So I looked at two things. My time is gone again. You'll be well used with that to little phrase by now, but we'll get there. The thanks of his prayer. Ezra thanks God that he has shown mercy in his righteous anger. He had delivered a remnant. Look at verse 8. And now for a little space, grace hath been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. God had allowed a remnant over 80 years ago about 50,000 returned this last return, 1,500, 2,000, whatever. God had allowed a remnant to come back. God had shown mercy and wrath, he remembered mercy. And the theme of the remnant is brought to attention not only here but throughout the Bible. In verse 8 and 14 and 15 of this chapter, you can find that word remnant. Whatever happens, however wicked, Men may become, the world become, God will always have a remnant. Elijah said, I alone am standing for God. And God says, you're not. I have 7,000 you don't know about. And he was caught up with his own self-importance. God knew there was a remnant. God had a remnant. God will always have a remnant who will remain faithful to him, who are saved from extinction. And then we're told here, God gave his people a nail in this holy place. That's what it says at the end of verse 8. And to give us a nail in his holy place, or a firm place, if you like, in the land of Judah. And the literal translation would be a tent peg. I never liked tenting. We were to go on one of those holidays and thankfully the person that owned the tent that we were going to get he called off at the last minute, so we had to go to a, a guest house and uh, whatever it was, it was far better than going in that old tent. Some of you enjoy that kind of lifestyle. That's not me at all. Trying to fry an egg out there in the snow, maybe, <laughs> or the rain or the gale, whatever, or the, whatever happens. So we have this thought of the tent peg. This may relate to the nomad who could pitch his tent only where he was allowed to pitch his tent. You get that picture now? It was God the creator who gave the Jews authority to settle in Judah. This land is my land, God says. My people are there. On the other hand, it may have a reference to the tabernacle, which was fastened down with, with bronze, I think, tent pegs. Exodus 27, 19. The temple uh, or the tabernacle was a safe place for God's people. Another suggestion is this, and it takes us into the kitchen, uh, and the ladies might be familiar with this kind of thing, is that the peg refers to the iron bolt fixed firmly in the kitchen wall to hold pots and pans. I wouldn't know a lot about pots and pans in my house, but ladies, 
have a fair idea what I'm talking about. And such a peg was considered to be unmovable. However, the metaphor is understood. The point is that God who moved the Persian kings to release his people was not going to abandon them. Now, hallelujah. That's a wonderful thought. God is faithful. Even when we're not faithful, he remains faithful. They deserved destruction, but God was merciful to them. He brought them back, you see. He brought back the remnant. And there was a reason. Because one day, a carpenter with his wife, who was great with child, arrived in Bethlehem. There was no room in the inn. She went to a stable, she went to a cave, an outhouse, whatever. And there, Jesus Christ was born. That's why God did this. To get his people back in the land so that Christ could be born there. God works in mysterious ways, has wonders to perform. He's sovereign in all the affairs of men. And in his divine providence, he brought the people back. And we're told here in verse 9, for we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving. Oh, revive thy work again. Is that not what Coleraine needs? We've had revival meetings, I don't know how many years they've been going here. We still haven't experienced that revival yet. But maybe tonight on our knees, we could maybe just intercede that God would do that. And after all these years of waiting, may God give us a little reviving in Jesus' name. And how did God revive his people to set up the house of our God? That was God sending revival that got the foundation laid, that got the building up in spite of the opposition. To repair the desolations and to give us a wall in Judah and then Jerusalem. Now, I don't think that the reference here is to the wall of Jerusalem because that wasn't really finalized until Ezra, until Nehemiah came, what, 13 years later. And he did a powerful work inside that, inside six weeks. He got the job done. Unbelievable what you can do when God's in it. Sometimes it's hard going doing things, but then God takes over and it, it becomes easy. And you can make uh, amazing strides forward when God's in the thing. I could be plowing uh, concrete in the morning time about 10 o'clock, 11 in my study. And what's hard, it's tough going. I, I need a word for tonight for the prayer meeting. What am I going to do here? And then just like a, an earthquake, he breaks in. And gives something refreshing, something new. A reviving. Oh, that's what we need. And God is the wall here. I don't think it's referring to the wall that would be later built. It's a description of God who is the protector of his people. And the combined forces of hell cannot prevail against the armored march of the church of God. Now when Ezra had prayed, I've got to move on. They're assembled unto him in chapter, one, chapter 10, verse 1. This is interesting. Now when Ezra had prayed, so he's prayed, and he comes to the end of his prayer, and they're assembled unto him, uh, the, these people, people 
weeping, casting themselves down before the house of God. They're at the house of God. Things began to happen when Ezra prayed. That's the point. The Spirit wrought mightily in the hearts and consciences of these guilty people. Remember what it says in Isaiah 65, 24. Listen to it. Oh, that we might enter into this. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, when they're yet speaking, do we believe this? I will hear. And when God heard Samuel, what did they do? He answered. The people wept very sore, according to verse 1. There was a moving in the hearts of the people. What do we want to see in our congregation? We want to see people weeping under God. We want to see people under deep conviction of sin. We want to see people converted in our meetings. And through prayer, Ezra became a great mover and a great work of God with marvelous results. Sidlow Baxter, I think it was, said this. I think it was him. Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. That's a powerful statement. Powerful statement. The man had a very unusual way to speak and to talk, but you could have listened to him for hours ministering the word. And the sequel to Ezra's prayer was very costly and a painful separation from the mixed marriages. Let's... To be dealt with next time, chapter 10. Our prayers are holy words, hollow words, if they do do not lead to holiness. I'm coming to a close. Last night, late on, as I was thinking about this, 10, 11 o'clock, I came across this little poem. I'm going to read it to you. It's entitled, Travel on Your Knees. Last night I took a journey to land far across the seas. I didn't go by boat or plane, some missionaries do. I trusted on my knees. I saw so many people there in deepest deepest depths of sin, and Jesus told me I should go, that there were souls to win. But I said, Jesus, I can't go and work with such as these. He answered quickly, yes, you can, by traveling on your knees. On his knees, this man of God before us here today. He said, you pray, I meet the need. You call and I will hear. Be concerned about lost souls of those both far and near. And so I tried it, I knelt in prayer, I felt the Lord right by my side. Oh, that would be a wonderful thing tonight. If you're sitting down there, me sitting up here, beginning to pray, we sense the Lord right beside us. That would, that would be a powerful meeting. Powerful altogether. While traveling, I, so I'll read it again. I'm getting carried away here. And so I tried, I knelt in prayer. I felt the Lord right by my side when traveling on my knees. As I prayed on and saw souls saved, and saw God's workers' strength renewed by laboring on the field. I said, yes, Lord, I have a job. My desire, thy will to please. I can go and heed thy call. 
by traveling on my knees. The word of God held me. Verse 5, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, and said, he spoke to God. May we speak to God tonight in this season of prayer. We're on our knees before God. We have loved ones, families and friends, the need of a pastor, need for the work of God among the boys and girls, the young people, the open air work, a host of things. Let's engage the throne of heavenly grace. We're on our knees tonight. Let's all seek the Lord together, please. Could I encourage you, as I always endeavor to do, to pray and keep our prayers short and to the point. And if you feel you need to pray for something a little bit later, that will do. There's no problem. You're welcome to do that. The need for the pastor, we keep that a priority. Need for souls, loved ones, a gracious reviving of our hearts. Repentance. Repentance. O oh God, our Father, we draw near to Thee and we feel we must needs confess our sins before Thee. Forgive us for our shortcomings, our faults, our failures, and we have many. We dare not try to hide them We've got to hold up our hands and we long for the same thing to happen in our hearts as happened in the days of Ezra after he prayed. There were many who gathered weeping, sobbing and sighing, confessing, praying for mercy, praying for God to come. May that be our portion tonight. And so as we come to pray as a congregation, right from the very word go, may someone enter in and may that be the way that it will be to the end of the prayer meeting tonight. We plead the blood, the devil's going to come, but we plead the blood of Jesus, just the way Samuel came with that sucking lamb. We draw near through the, the Christ of the cross, teach us to pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody lead us now, please.